Amen. Thanks, Chris. All right, everybody. How are we doing? Feeling good? It's Wednesday night. Ludwig Fellowship is back with a vengeance. Uh, no, it's not. This will be nice. This will be a sweet time. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of Cross Point's pastors, and um, together with Tyler Kirkpatrick, uh, we will be um, in a four-week series. We'll be starting a four-week <clears throat> series tonight. Uh, just looking at what is called biblical theology. I want to explain and what I mean by that here in a moment. Um, hopefully, when you came in, you noticed on the back table there um, a bunch of uh, little outlines of what we'll be talking about tonight. If you didn't grab one, run back there and get a copy. Um, the words will be on the screen. Ja- or Jay Hearn. Come on, yeah, look at him. Get your copies. Red Hot copies right here. Um, make sure you tip them well. Um, grab that. And um, I do, I was reminded of something we need to pray for, and I'm going to pray for it now before I inevitably forget and then feel all sorts of guilt and shame and an overwhelming burden of having forgotten. Um, Melissa Harrison mentioned this, that um, some uh, our missions partners, Herb and Evelyn, uh, I made the mistake in the moment of referring to her as Evelyn, which I realize is not the typical pronunciation, and I have gotten nothing but flack for that as a person who rarely mispronounces words. Uh, that said, her and Evelyn, that is not their names, and that's really the reason why you shouldn't pick pseudonyms. You should just go with, I'm going on a rant. Anyway, uh, they are uh, serving uh, the Lord in North Africa right now, and uh, they have a teammate of theirs who um, is having visa problems um, and trying to get um, favor with the the local government to get that worked out. As you can imagine, being overseas, trying to serve the Lord and and share the gospel, especially among Muslims like they are, uh, is uh, it's, it's just pretty tense, just in general. But then when you are thrown in the middle of not being able to get your permission slip to even exist where you are, uh, that's, a, that's a really big deal. So let, let's pray right now for this teammate of theirs, and, uh, and then we'll continue. Father, we, um, well, we thank you for, for Herb and Evelyn. We thank you for this teammate. We thank you for all the people that they're serving with and uh, the, the mission that you've called them to, um, to proclaim the gospel, uh, to help people made in your image be reconciled to you, their creator. Um, And especially in this case, a people that think that they know you, um, that that think that they have the keys to your kingdom, and yet yet do not because they are outside of Christ. I pray that um, you would even now be at work among the local officials there where they are to... um, to bring about this visa, to make, make this, all the paperwork and the logistics of this come together quickly uh, and efficiently and effectively so that they can continue to serve. This teammate of theirs especially can continue to remain where, uh, where they are and, and serve in this way. Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would do that even now. I pray that we would be encouraged to, to hear how you have been at work among them. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, all right. Well, um, Biblical theology, let's, let's give a little definition of what we mean by this. I was a little nervous, Tyler and I were, maybe me a little bit more so, 
uh, about, about having the theme of Midweek Fellowship be biblical theology because that, that sounds so generic and not really all that interesting and exciting of a topic. Uh, but, but it is really interesting and exciting. And, uh, and I want to maybe clarify what it is and, and what it isn't. So a lot of times when people hear the, the phrase or the term, biblical theology, what they immediately go to is, oh, it's, it's doctrine about God that's from the Bible. It's biblical, and it's theology. It's biblical theology. That's good. I like that, and I like Chick-fil-A, so I'm going to come to Midweek Fellowship and learn. Um, but that's not, that's not fully what we mean by biblical theology. Yes, That's definitely part of it. I hope that everything we talk about tonight and next week and the two weeks after that will be biblical and will direct your heart to a true knowledge of of the Lord. Okay, yeah, that's what we want. But when we talk about biblical theology, uh, I want to give you some more kind of categories for this. Let me compare it first to uh, systematic theology. Okay, so a lot of you, I imagine, are much more familiar with systematic theology, whether you realize the term is in your head or not. Uh, But systematic theology is where we come to the Bible with questions. We want to know what the Bible says about a particular topic. So let's say sin. Uh, I want to know what the Bible has to say about sin. And so then you just go through the Bible. Or maybe you read what somebody else did when they went through the Bible and compiled all that Scripture has to say about sin. And so you read about sin in Genesis 3, and you read about sin in Exodus and Leviticus. You read about all the ways to deal with sin. You read about how the, 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 the results of sin and everything that comes from it. You read about the atonement of Jesus to overcome sin. And you, you get all these little nuggets of truth, and you, you kind of bring them all together. And you go, okay, let me make sense of this. Not that the Bible is nonsense, you know what I mean. Rather, okay, I've got all this information. I need to synthesize this. I need to put this together. Uh, And so systematic theology is a really helpful way to study the Bible. It's a really helpful way for Christians to know and establish what it is that we believe. You think about any confession of faith you've ever read or the confession of faith that we hold to at Crosspoint. That's a systematic theology. It's very small, it's very brief, um, but uh, it's, it's nonetheless, it's a systematic way of, of thinking about what the Bible has to say about important subjects. Systematic theology is also driven not so much by the Bible as it is by what we want to hear from the Bible. Does that make sense? Systematic theology is biblical, but it's, it's, it, the impetus for it is what do we have questions about? What is it that we want to learn about? So for example, you know, John Calvin, when he put together the, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, that, that great systematic theology in the 1500s, uh, he had questions that maybe we don't have nowadays. Likewise, there are questions that he doesn't come to Scripture looking for the answers to, that nowadays we absolutely have to come to the Bible for. I mean, even in the last 20 years, you think about the, the things that we have to go to Scripture for now, that, that 20 years ago, Wayne Grudem, when he wrote Systematic Theology, didn't necessarily have to delve into. Like, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? John Calvin is not worried about that question. That's a ridiculous question to him. But that, that, is, that is a hugely important question for us, right? 
So systematic theology works in these ways, and it changes over time in terms of what we're looking into and, uh, and how we piece things together and relate different, different topics, okay? Biblical theology is not driven by what we come to the Bible wanting to know. Uh, it's driven more by the Bible itself. It's not to say that it's better, or that systematic theology is a waste of time. It's to say this is a different approach to understanding and comprehending what God's Word says. With biblical theology, I think it's a, a good way to summarize it maybe, is to say that we're, we want to interpret the Bible with the Bible. So in some ways, biblical theology is something you're doing anytime you're reading Scripture and studying it with a group of people. Uh, if, it's, if it's what's called like an inductive type of Bible study, where you're going, okay, what does God's Word say to me? How does this connect with other passages in Scripture that I'm familiar with that speak into the same sort of issues? What's, what's the relationship between this passage and the one that came before it, the one that comes after it? Those are the questions of biblical theology. Uh, biblical theology summarizes uh, what, what the Scriptures say. It follows the path that the Scriptures lay out. Uh, so sometimes it looks like summarizing the theological emphasis of a book. What's the Gospel of John about? If we could boil the Gospel of John down into a sentence or two, what would we say that it's about? And, and then likewise, is that different than what we would say 1 Corinthians is about? Is that different than what we would say Leviticus is all about? And, and, and then even if there's differences there, how do these books and paragraphs, how do they relate to each other? How do we get from Genesis to Revelation? You know, what, what's the trajectory of Scripture? We're not just necessarily trying to summarize the whole Bible or even books of the Bible, but we're also thinking about different themes that come up in the Bible. Uh, now, you may think, for example, okay, how does that differ from systematic theology, where we're taking a topic and we're kind of compiling everything? When we talk about biblical theology, and I mentioned a word like theme, I think it's really important to remember, and maybe this is not something you think about often, I think it's something that Christians would do well to think of more, that the Bible is, is literature. I don't mean that it's fiction. I don't mean that it belongs on the shelf with, you know, the latest, you know, like Steve Brown novel or something. I, I mean, the Bible is, is it, it, it's literature. It, it is composed of different genres. It's got different authors. These books, they have, they have a point to them. The author is not just writing something rambling. Even the history books that we have in Scripture, they're not just a recording of what happened in history. They're an interpretation of what happened in history as well, aren't they? There are certain things that are mentioned, and there are certain things that are totally left out, even within the Bible. If you've ever compared the, the books of Kings with the books of Chronicles, for example, there are a few places where they're almost verbatim identical. But then there are a few places where certain details are completely ignored in Chronicles that Kings feels we need to know, and vice versa. Uh, they're written with a purpose. And, and to that end, the authors of Scripture, they see themes, they see ideas, they see important concepts. 
And these things are woven throughout not just maybe one book, but even through multiple books, even through the entire Bible. Uh, and, and so you can think of themes, for example, like what we'll be talking about tonight, creation. The concept, the idea of creation, uh, that, that's a theme that is woven through Scripture that really helps us to understand the Bible as a whole, and it helps us to understand the gospel better because the Lord has woven this theme through his word. Does that make sense? You track it with me? So, we trace themes through the Bible. Another way we might do biblical theology is by studying a particular book's influences and then how it's used later on. So, for example, we, we get to, uh, I'm just, just off the top of my head, we get to Isaiah. Well, Isaiah was written well after Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, Isaiah is written with those words ringing through his head, right? So we have to account for that when we read Isaiah. If something in Isaiah sounds eerily similar to something we've read already in Genesis, that's not an accident. You know, like that's, that's deliberate. What do we do with that? But not only that, how do we interpret Isaiah in light of the, the scriptures that come later? Because everyone who wrote scripture after Isaiah has Isaiah echoing in the back of their mind. What do they make of it? Now, that's really important when we get to the New Testament, because the New Testament is full of these examples of, of God's word interpreting even scripture that we may have read in a totally different context earlier on. Uh, so that, that's how biblical theology works. As you can imagine, I mean, there, there's a lot of application here, but that's what we mean when we say biblical theology. We want, we want to let the, the storyline of scripture open our eyes to to what God's word says. We want to be informed by all of the Bible, uh, not just the, the questions or topics that we want to zero in on, as helpful as that can be at times. So, um, all right, what does biblical theology do? What, is, what does it do? And I, I have taken uh, some liberty here with a really helpful, very short book that I very foolishly forgot to order and have copies of available for anybody who wanted one, but we'll have one. We'll have some available next Wednesday night, uh, but it's called, helpfully, Biblical Theology. Again, it's really short, and it's really handy. It's written by uh, uh, Nick Rourke and Robert Klein, and they outline a few of these things, and I just want to run through it with you really quick to kind of give you more of a sense of why this is important and why it's helpful. Biblical theology, it helps us to clarify the Bible's main purpose, Right? It, it gives us a sense of the big picture, which then helps us to fit all the little pieces into that big picture. Right? If, if, if you've ever, I, I used to do this as a kid. My son does this now all the time when he's reading. He's always tempted, if he doesn't do it or not, to, to read the last page or even the last chapter of a book uh, before he's even necessarily started it or certainly gotten all the way into it, Right? I mean, maybe some of you still do that. That's okay. Uh, because there's, it's helpful because it, it gives you an idea of where we're going. And it allows you to make sense as you're reading along how this fits into the bigger whole. Like, how, how does all of this work together? Um, and, and, and honestly, that's how we read most anything once we've read it one time, right? Especially something like the Bible. We're reading it in the context of the bigger narrative, the bigger story. 
the, the bigger picture. So uh, biblical theology helps us to clarify things like that. It helps to guard and guide the church as well. It, it keeps us from veering off into different uh, errors. In, in particular, uh, because it allows us to understand where certain instructions in Scripture uh, fit and how they relate to us today. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a minute when we talk about covenants and how they help to structure the Bible. Um, but for example, you know, biblical theology gives us handlebars for how to deal with commands in Scripture like, don't eat shellfish. Biblical theology is how we can go out and eat shrimp uh, and, and do so with a clean conscience. Because we're reading that passage in the context of the bigger picture. And it keeps us, keeps us from veering off into all kinds of nonsense. Uh, biblical theology helps us in our evangelistic outreach. It allows us to make sense of the gospel. Uh, it allows us to, to piece together all of Scripture. And we have, therefore, all of Scripture at our disposal as we share the good news with other people. Uh, as, as we declare what Jesus has done, who he is, it's really helpful to have some background on why he even had to be here in the first place. Uh, what his relationship to us even really means and looks like. Also, biblical theology helps us to read, understand, and teach the Bible like Jesus did. Luke 24 uh, recounts the, the story of Jesus' interaction with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they have no idea who he is. This is post-resurrection. He's walking down the road with them. They, they see him. They're talking with him. They're, they're super depressed, forlorn. They just witnessed their, 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 their Lord die. But they don't recognize him here in this moment. And so they're talking with Jesus on the way, and they're telling him all about what they think he has no idea about, you know, this Jesus and his death and the horror of it all. But as they keep walking, Jesus begins to explain to them and talk with them about the Bible. And you know what? Jesus didn't have the Gospel of Luke handy. What he had was Genesis through Malachi, and, uh, and that's where he goes. That's what he uses. And he proceeds to give them this incredible roadside Bible study uh, uh, explaining how everything that they think is just the end of the world is, in fact, the hope of the world. And he uses Genesis through Malachi to do it. All the while, Luke tells us this is his way. He's pointing them to him, to the Christ. I mean, Luke is so explicit about this. Uh, and, and so we, we ourselves, right, as people who love God's word and follow Jesus, we want to understand the Bible the same way. Uh, this is how Jesus taught his disciples there. That's certainly how we want to understand the Bible as well. And that's how we want to be able to communicate the Bible uh, to one another, to our, to our children, to our friends and family, to unbelievers. So what are the tools of biblical theology? How, 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 what, is there anything we need? Are there any helpful things that we can put in our tool bag so that we can, we can do biblical theology, or at least so that the next 30 minutes makes some sense? Um, what, what, are some, what are some things we can, we can use? And, and I'll tell you, some of this may sound daunting at first, um, but, but I think as you, as you just hear me out, um, it, it's really actually pretty straightforward. And I think it fits in line with the ways that we all instinctively read things and understand and intake knowledge, or at least the way that we should. Um, 
In fact, everything that I'm about to tell you right now, you can, you can find all this information in a really good study Bible. I, like you, you don't have to have big textbooks on your shelf. You don't have to have access to special online forums or whatever. You just need a good study Bible, uh, and it can, it can help you with this. In fact, you don't even really even need that all the time. You just need to be familiar with the Bible. Uh, so let that be your encouragement to be more familiar with the Bible. I don't know. Uh, I like the ESV study Bible, by the way. Um, and I also like one, uh, it was called the NIV Zondervan study Bible, something like that. But then they rebranded it because I don't think people understood what it was and didn't want to buy it. So they called it the Biblical Theology Study Bible, which I think is a better name for it. But then I think it still went out of print. I don't know. But if you can find it, it's really good. And, and the editor for it is a guy named D.A. Carson. And, and it's really helpful uh, for, for notes and, and things like what we're about to, to run through here. So let me give you some tools for biblical theology, what, how, how you can do this. One thing you need, and conveniently, all five of these things start with a C. And by the way, all these have been lifted from that handy little book that we'll have available next week called Biblical Theology. The first thing that is helpful to have in your back pocket is context. Context. It makes so much sense. Context. Now, context can kind of come in two sort of categories here. One is historical context. And the other is literary context. So let me explain. When you're reading Genesis, you're reading about historical events, right? But you're also reading a literary form of those historical events. You're not just learning that, that Adam and Eve were made. You're, you're learning where that fits in the timeline of history. You're, you're, you're getting a sense of what that means, too. So, so let's talk about what that means. Historical context means things like, who's the author of this book? What was his intention in writing this in the first place? Closely related to that is, who is the author writing to? Who's the audience? The original audience for all of the Bible is not you or me. The original audience is like a band of Israelites wandering the desert. It's, it's a group of disciples, you know, struggling through persecution in Rome. It's helpful to understand what's the historic context of this. What that original audience need to know? What were they concerned with? And then closely tied to that, about when was this even written? Now, now the older books of Scripture, we have a much broader window for that sort of information. But you still get a pretty good idea where it falls in the course of history, and certainly in the course of biblical history. Uh, but the closer you get to the Gospels, the closer you get to our day, right, you have more exact dates and, and expectations for things. Another type of context is literary context. So what, what kind of book is this? If you're reading Revelation in the same way that you read 2 Kings, you are going to have some serious problems, right? I mean, it's gonna me it will mess you up. Please don't, please don't do that. You need to understand, what genre am I reading? And there's maybe millions of ways we can divide all these genres, but there, there are some pretty basic ones. And they're just helpful to know. Is this a letter? Okay, that, that's going to convey a different sort of information in a different way. Uh, it's going to have much more direct application for sure. Is, is this a, a history? Okay, I'm going to read this with, with different expectations of what's going on here. 
Is this poetry? Okay, I need to read this differently than I'm reading a history. Um, the, the, so genre is important. What's the, what's the flow of the story? What's the flow of the book? Where do we start? Where do we end? What comes after verse 1? Why is verse 2 there and not where verse 3 is? What, what's going on? Let's, let's look at just the flow, the way, it, the way it's structured. What's the, the grammar being used? Are there words that are repeated a lot? Are there phrases that we see a lot? Or is, this, is any of this familiar in the book itself or maybe in light of other books of Scripture? What's the near and the far context? What, what do the sentences right around this passage say? Well, what, what's the rest of the book say that might be relevant here too? Okay, that's the context. Let's talk about covenants. Covenant. Now, honestly, you could do a biblical theology just thinking about covenant. But I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily do that right here. I just want to give you, again, some handlebars for how to put yourself in the right place when you're reading the Bible. Because throughout history, God has revealed himself to his people and, and made covenants with them to establish what, what his relationship to them is, what it looks like. Um, and, then, and then scripture is really structured with all of these covenants in mind. Okay, so one covenant, the first covenant that we find in the Bible is God's covenant with Adam. He makes this covenant. He gives Adam some instruction. Here's what you do. Implicit in all of this, I, I am your God. Here's the place where you're going to live. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, tend to everything, subdue everything. You, you own it. You're the gardener. Here's your garden. Go. God makes a covenant with Adam. And, and then implicitly with every one of his descendants. Okay, but then later on, we see another covenant crop up where God makes a covenant with Noah. Right? Noah comes after the entire human race has been wiped out, and God is essentially resetting the human race, and he puts forward Noah as a new representative of all of mankind. And God tells Noah a lot of the same sort of things that, that he told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. But he gives Noah a sign of this covenant. He puts this rainbow in the sky, and in doing so, he promises to Noah, and then, therefore, to every one of his descendants, I am not going to wipe out the earth the way that I did ever again. Later, after that, God makes a covenant with Abraham, whose name is Abram at the time, and, and he tells Abraham that he has chosen him out of all the peoples of the earth, to establish a special, very unique relationship that he does not have with any other people on the face of the earth. I mean, Abram is a pagan idolater when the Lord calls him out of the wilderness. And he brings him out and he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. Here's how this is going to work. Here's what this will look like. I'm going to bring you to a place. I'm going to give you a place where you will worship me and you will have more descendants than you can count. And you will be here in my presence or I'll be with you and the nations will be blessed because of this. God establishes his covenant with Abraham. He then further establishes a covenant through Moses with all of those descendants that God promised to Abraham, all of Israel. 
He makes a covenant with them. He establishes a law. He, he institutes this, this sign of the law where there's, there's a Sabbath day that is, that's important. And, and you've got all these things that kind of fulfill, are, are uh, fleshed out underneath the Ten Commandments and, and, and all that comes from that. Uh, and, and the Lord promises to bring them into this land where they will together worship him rightly, and in a way that sets them apart from the rest of the world around them. Um, of course, in all this, I mean, as I'm revealing these covenants, you realize there's a common thread, which is that the Lord is so faithful to his people, but they remain perpetually hopeless in their unfaithfulness to uphold anything even close to resembling their part of the deal. Uh, but, but the Lord remains faithful, and in fact, he continues his faithfulness by implementing a covenant with David, the chosen son of Israel, but Israel's king, whom God puts forward to rule over his people, to mediate his own divine reign and rule over his people. David also likewise stands in the place of the people before God. He's like their representative not just before the nations, but before God. And God tells David in establishing this covenant, I, I'm going to give you a, an eternal throne. You will always have someone seated on your throne. Your house will never be snuffed out. This culminates, and I, I say culminates really uh, specifically, because none of, these, none of these covenants are ever discontinued or, or, or substituted or erased. But with, with each subsequent covenant, with every next step, the Lord is building on what he's already established. Just building on. And it all culminates, it, it reaches the apex in the new covenant that God establishes, not through Abraham, not through Moses, not through David, but through Jesus. And he, he talks about this new covenant all the way back in the Old Testament. If you look at, and we're not going to do that here, but if you look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Matthew, these references here in, in the notes, uh, you, you see how the Lord has always had this plan of, of ruling and reigning over his people, of being their God, of them being his people, gathered together in his presence for his glory, for their joy, and for the good of the world. That's always been God's purpose. But in Christ, it reaches the, the fullest fulfillment that there is. There, there's, there's nothing more that can be done. There's no, and, and that sounds limiting. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing better that we could possibly imagine or look for. But it's fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. In fact, Jesus fulfills all of these other covenants in a way that none of God's people in the past were ever able to do. Jesus is the better Adam. He's the true Noah. He, he, is, he is Abraham's son with a capital S. He is David's heir. Right? He, he, he is the fulfillment of all of these things. And knowing what covenant is, is in effect uh, in whatever passage, passage of Scripture you're reading is really helpful. It helps us to know how we relate to something. 
You know, like when you think about, for example, and this is often brought up kind of as a gotcha, when you think about the Old Testament command not to eat shellfish, well, under the covenant that God established through Moses, yeah, that's really, that is really important. It's not silly. It's not just accidental. The Lord is setting his people apart from the surrounding pagan nations. He, he is maybe doing some things that are, are helpful and, and protective to them, but more than that, he is setting them apart. This is one of the ways that they are reminded of, of the innate sort of uncleanness that they all bring to the table and, and how important it is that they be holy and different from the nations around them. But we don't live in that covenant. We're not under that covenant. We're, we're under the new covenant with Christ as our head. And in Christ, the Mosaic law has been fulfilled. In fact, you could say that, that like, it's not that, it's not, and this is literally what Jesus says, it's not that he's done away with the law. It's still under effect, but he has fulfilled it in himself. And if you're in Christ, you've fulfilled it too. Well, that's going to make a major difference in how you read the Bible, isn't it? Knowing what covenant is in effect, it makes a major difference. Or what about this? You read about Noah. He, he gets off the boat. One of the first things he does is he makes a sacrifice to God. Oh, but is that okay? Because very clearly sacrifices can only be made according to certain standards and principles and rules. It, the altar, you, you got you to, he doesn't even have a priest present. But that, that's not the covenant that Noah was under. Right? So Noah's worship of the Lord is perfectly acceptable because of where he's at. Okay, I've taken way too much time with that. But knowing covenants is really helpful. Knowing canon is really helpful. Canon, not explosives or weapons, but, but canon, the, the word of God as it's been laid out and recognized by God's people through the ages. From Genesis to Revelation, every book of the Bible. What, how does this passage connect to the, the larger picture of Scripture? Are there themes present here that are present there? Are there prophecies that we are meant to have in mind as we read this passage that were uttered over here? Are there types, things that we see appearing again and again in Scripture that clearly point to something greater? Uh, are, are there promises and fulfillment of those promises? And even in that, you could say, is, this, is the promise being fulfilled in greater and greater measure? Is that a pattern that we see in Scripture? Sometimes it is. Continuity, but also discontinuity. And I think this trips people up sometimes. Uh, but when we read Scripture, and when we think of the Bible and the big picture of the Bible, we're not only always looking for continuity, seeing things stay the same. We're also looking, and sometimes it's really telling, the things that are different. Oh, this is not what I expected. Every other time these words have been uttered, this is what follows. But here, not so. What's going on? This is really important. <laughs> Every other time the Lord does this when this situation comes up, but he doesn't do that here. Why? Discontinuity can tell us a lot. The final two are much more uh, self-explanatory. We want to be guided by the character of God. Our God does not change. As we read Scripture, we're, we're reading and seeing and hearing the same true, consistent, never-changing God. 
So when we read the Old Testament and are maybe prone to thinking of God as more angry than he is in the New Testament, let's say, uh, we need to remember that it's the same God. And how do these things fit together? Because the Bible, is a, it fits together. It's not meant to be read disjointedly, but it's meant to be read as a, as a whole, with everything kind of always echoing around in our minds. And the same goes for Christ. How, how, as we read any passage of Scripture, any book of the Bible, how does this point us to Jesus? If it's the Old Testament, how is this leading us up to the gospel? Because the Old Testament is always doing that. If it's the New Testament, especially if it's one of the letters, one of the epistles, how is this helping to explain by looking back at the cross, looking back to the, the, the good news as it happened? Right, that, that helps us. We want to see Jesus when we read the Bible. That's what Jesus did. So let me, let me give you a very, very quick example of this. I told D that there was a really good chance I was going to mention scriptures and not at all read them. And, and that, D, just letting you know, that's definitely about to happen. Um, let me, let me, let me I, I will read some here. Let's, let's talk about uh, a biblical theology of creation. A biblical theology of creation. In the next three weeks, uh, Tyler and I are going to kind of tag team or back and forth on just some other uh, themes that you find in Scripture. I think we've talked about um, studying uh, the, the, the roles or offices that we find in the Bible of prophet, priest, and king. I think Tyler's going to do that next week. Uh, we've talked about the, the really um, important theme of judgment. And in particular, like the number of times that that flooding occurs in the Bible as a sign of judgment. Uh, that's, that's a helpful, important thing to, to think about. Uh, I can't remember what the third, oh, God's presence with his people. Uh, in particular, thinking about like the temple in the Bible. That's an important recurring type that we see again and again in the Bible. How does it help us to synthesize everything? But tonight, I just want to look at creation. And this one's, this one's relatively straightforward. Uh, I am by no means going to unearth everything that there is here to unearth. Uh, so, so in fact, as, you're, as I'm mentioning stuff, you know, I would encourage you not necessarily to flip through your Bible. I, this is the only time you're ever going to hear me say this. Um, I, I think it's helpful when we think about biblical theology, especially if you're new to this, to be thinking about it in terms, I mean, really wrap your minds around hearing and understanding the Bible as one big story, Okay. And if you're constantly flipping and, and like looking up and writing stuff down, you're, you're fine to do that. That's okay. But it might be helpful just for a moment for the next 13, well now 10 minutes, uh, to, uh, to just kind of hear what I'm saying. Uh, and pretend like this is sort of midweek story time, all right? So let, let, me, let me turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. That's, that's a good place to start when you're, when you're tracing the, the idea the theme of creation through the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to read different passages here, starting in, in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. 
And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. I'm not going to continue reading, but you, you hear these recurring things happening, right? One word that keeps coming up is good. This is good. God declares it good. He speaks it into being, and it's good. And he keeps doing this through the subsequent days of creation, only now he's starting to fill these places, these habitats that he's made. He puts creatures in the water and on the land and in the air. He puts stars in the sky. He he fills this world that he's made. And, And in the midst of that, he adds the pinnacle of his creation. Verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Just as an aside, to give you just an idea, again, of what we're talking about here, this idea of resting on the seventh day, that's a huge biblical theological concept. We read about it here, but it becomes really the cornerstone of the law that Moses gives to the Israelites, that they would rest on the seventh day. He fleshes it out a little bit and gives them some more parameters for what that means, but it doesn't go away there. It, in fact, continues. When they enter the promised land, God establishes rules for how they're to develop the land, and every seventh year, you got to shut it down. In fact, every, every uh, seven years times seven, so in the 50th year, So after 49, in the 50th year, if you've given your land to anybody that was your family land, it's got to go back to the family. And you get to to Hebrews, and it's a huge point of emphasis that, that God has not just created a day for his people to rest, as if that was ever the full intention of what he set out to do. Rather, if you're in Christ, you have entered that Sabbath rest right now. Okay, sorry, that was, that was free. But that, like, that's how biblical theology works, is you're going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you're saying, okay, where does this change, and how does this snake wind its way through the Bible? Snakes are a bad image to use, I realize. But how does this theme work its way through the Bible? 
It's a river. Thank you, Jeremy. Okay, that's good. That was better. All right. Uh, let's, let's keep going. Genesis uh, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man. So we're getting a story here about how it worked for him to make mankind. And, and he formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Um, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll stop there. Let's fast forward way ahead. Let's look at Revelation. Revelation, and I want to pick up here in chapter 20. And I just want you to listen and, and, and hear the incredible similarities between the last three chapters of the Bible and the first three chapters of the Bible. And I defy you to tell me that it wasn't on purpose. It was. It was. All right. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw, this is John speaking now, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. I guess it would have been helpful for me to read some of chapter 3, but you know the story of chapter 3, right? Satan, the serpent, he tempts Adam and Eve. Everything falls to pieces. They're banished from the garden, cast into death itself, right? And, and, and the serpent is cursed. And you know what? No, we got time, and I've already said it. So let's, let's look at it, because it's helpful. It's good. Now, the serpent, Genesis 3, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve's got a little memory problem, but we'll talk about that later. Okay, so, and then verse 8 they heard the sound, so they've eaten from the tree. Adam takes a bite too. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, the Lord's presence with them is now like, this is a problem, as you see. They're, they're terrified. Let's fast forward to verse 14. The Lord God then said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations. Deceive, you hear that word again? Any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge, authority, dominion, was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. You remember Eve's words? I'm sorry, I'm just telegraphing it the whole way. Uh, if we eat of this, we will die. 
Okay, here we're talking about the resurrection. Here the serpent is put in his place. He's not just cursed to roam the earth. He's locked away. He's put in a pit so that God's people can reign, fill the earth, subdue it once again. They, they, they live. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Looking forward to uh, chapter 21 here. When Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will run and hide and cover themselves with fig leaves. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. You remember how the serpent challenged the very words of God? Well, you, can't, you can't challenge these. All right, one more. Revelation 22. 1 through 5, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. It's one of the first things that God named, right? Night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I mean, there's just, there's just so many things here that we can unpack, and I'm like deeply regretting that we're basically out of time. But I want you to see here, I mean, Genesis and Revelation are written like I mean, centuries apart by two completely different guys who, if they had met each other, would probably not have been able to speak the same. Like, they wouldn't have necessarily been able to have a coherent conversation. Right? John is writing his gospel. He's writing Revelation in Greek. Moses is writing over here in Hebrew. And, it's, it's just, and he's writing about things that happened well before his time. You see how God has superintended his word. So that you can read Genesis and you can read Revelation and you can read everything that comes in between and you can see a cohesive story taking shape. This story of creation is woven through Scripture. It's one of the easiest things to find here. Uh, and it comes with a pretty consistent pattern. There's creation and then there's the fall. But then there's redemption. And that consummates itself in a new creation. And, and I, I hope you see it. So there's a little diagram on the bottom of your notes there. That's, that's kind of what this is meant to, to point out. <clears throat> um, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This is just a pattern. 
in Scripture. Let me give you an idea of how this carries itself out. You see it clearly with Adam and Eve, right? You know, they're created, but then they fall into sin, and they're cast out of the garden. They are sent away from the presence of God. But there's redemption. There's actually glimmers of hope even before they leave the garden, where in Genesis 3, verse 15, he tells Eve that, or he tells the serpent, rather, that the offspring of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. The gospel's already being told. There's, there's, all, there's this glimmer of hope in, in such a way that after they've been cast out and Adam and Eve start having children who are born now in this fallen world, uh, Adam, he, he, call, he, he gives Eve her name. Well, Eve means mother of the living, which is not the name you give to a woman who's just ushered in death. It's just not, right? It's a, it's a, it's a poor choice. But Adam knows what the Lord has promised, and he, he sees in her the hope of the gospel. And so he can call her that. So redemption is already woven into this story, and of course then it, it results in this new creation, not just of Cain and Abel, but even of Seth, who comes after Cain kills Abel, right? This, this pattern repeats itself. You get, you get to Noah. The world is so wicked. It is so fallen. The Lord destroys it in judgment, but he redeems mankind through Noah. He, he, he chooses Noah, sets him aside, and saves him and, eight, and seven other people on his boat. And they start a new creation. The Lord specifically tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply, which is something we have already read thanks to context. We know that this is a deliberate echo of what the Lord told Adam and Eve. But, but Noah can't, he just, like, he falls apart. He's drunk and unclothed. Uh, and, and his sons witness this, and they have no shame about it. And, and sin and debauchery just immediately cast a shadow over the world. And, and this continues, and then we get to Babel, and, and the Lord judges them there for building this tower as if they can equate themselves with God. He judges them, and and, and disperses them around the world in such a way that they can't even communicate with each other anymore. But there's redemption even in that. Because by doing this, the Lord is in fact fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's making it happen. Um, and, and, and then likewise, we get to redemption here and new creation when God, out of all these pagan people spread about the world, he picks Abram for himself. He establishes a new people through Abram. The problem with Abram, though, is that he is not uh, equipped to, to have a whole nation come from him. He's too old for it. His wife is, the Bible tells us, barren. Being fruitful and multiply is not something he can do, which he is very aware of and concerned about. Um, and, and Abram makes all kinds of mistakes and does stupid things, but the Lord brings about this new creation through him by establishing a new family. And that, that family spreads out into the earth, and eventually you get to Israel, and they are held captive in, in Egypt, but the Lord calls them out of Egypt. And at Sinai, he establishes a new people. He, he gives them his law, and he tells them, I will give you a land, I'll give you a place flowing with milk and honey. It's as if they are going to a new Eden, because the truth is they are. 
this pattern repeats itself again and again. I don't have to tell you what follows, right? The Israelites, they, they have a problem too. They fall. They're exiled away. David's line, the king, this great mighty king, faithful to the Lord, his descendants are jokes. They're wicked men. They're all cast out of God's presence. They're cast out of the promised land. But the Lord, in his grace and mercy, he redeems them and he brings about a new creation. And there are hints of it in the prophets, but it it reaches really the pinnacle in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I want you to hear these words and tell me it doesn't sound like something you've read. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Biblical theology helps bring us to this point, and we see the big picture, and we realize one major discontinuity in this whole thing. Every pattern of creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption, it it keeps spiraling out of control at some point. Because the new guy, whether it's Adam or Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of these guys, find a way to mess it up. They find a way to dishonor the Lord, disobey him, act in faithlessness. But the Lord, in John 1, he says, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. He sends Jesus. And this is no ordinary man. This is not just some Adam. It's a better Adam. And he puts him in his creation. The creator condescends to step down into creation. Tell me that's not going to work. And that's the the New Testament. And that's how we read passages like John 1. That's... That's, how we, that's what we anticipate when we read Genesis 1. That's what we revel in when we get to Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 and we hear about this new creation. It's not the same old, same old. This is something bigger, better, completely different, unexpected. This is God himself taking up the covenant that he's made, fulfilling it on his own terms and bringing us in by faith. That, that's, that's incredible. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus made all things. He, sp- he spoke it all into existence, and yet he condescended to dwell among us. Romans 5 and 8, they point out how Jesus is a better Adam. And if you're in him, he represents you. Just the way Adam represents us in the fall. When you get to 2 Corinthians 5 and 4, you you read about the new creation that God is instituting, not just in the world, but in your own heart, in your own life, in the way that he recreates us after the image of his son. A few things. What, what, what What do we learn through all this? There, There is always a new representative put forward and 
and throughout Scripture, a new representative for the people before God and until we get to Jesus. And then Jesus steps in as the final Adam. Another thing we learn is that God initiates creation every time. He's the one who graciously steps in, intervenes. And, and he initiates new creation too. Um, thirdly, and these are all random, there's so much more we could say. But since the fall, creation is really always in some way, and new creation I should say, getting things a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, until, until one day when the, all the imperfect is washed away. And, and the, the new heavens and the new earth are not, they're not the same as the world Adam and Eve inhabited before the fall. They're, in fact, better. We go from a garden to a city, a metropolis. We go from two people to multitudes, countless people considered to be God's children. We go from heaven and earth being these separated things to heaven and earth really being united in one thing. This, this is what biblical theology helps us to see. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what I want this uh, next few weeks to be about. So let me, let me read one thing, and then I'll pray for us. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I just, just think about what that means. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, 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 uh, we acknowledge that you, you are our creator, and that, that, I hope that means something um, so much more significant to our minds. The, the story of creation is one that m- many of us are no doubt uh, familiar with. From, from childhood. Uh, and yet how often and how easy is that for us to think of that story separate from and divorced from the gospel as if, as if these things have nothing to do with each other. And yet when we read about creation, we cannot help but know and be reminded of the truth that your gospel was set forward in motion even, even before creation, but that your creation, in fact, helps to model for us what salvation is and looks like. What it is that you have accomplished with your people. What it is that Jesus came and set out to do. I pray that you would help us to see your word with new eyes. Help us to be excited about coming to your word and delighting, enjoying seeing this bigger picture. Help us to do that these next few weeks. And I pray more than anything that you would equip us to read your word better. Not more, but better. Help us to understand it. And, and, and likewise, help us to, to read it w- with others, maybe with our own families, and have eyes to see how all of this points to your son. Because the Bible simply just doesn't make sense if it doesn't point to your son. And we thank you for that. Um, we thank you that the gospel binds us all, binds all of this together. And we ask that you would give us eyes and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.